everyone, and welcome back to The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, rays, and their underwater habitat, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host, Isla, and every episode, I sit down with experts in marine science, conservation, and storytelling to discuss lots of different topics and answer your questions about sharks and the oceans. Our aim here is to make concepts in shark science and conservation accessible to everyone. There is just so much to learn. Even as a scientist myself, I am learning new things every single episode. Like, I was today years old when I found out that there is a species of shark called the lost shark, and we find out why it's called that in this episode. So come along and learn cool facts about sharks with me. Today's episode is focused around a subject that a couple of you have requested, including Gayathra Bandara on Instagram and Gabriel from France, which is what are the rarest and most endangered species of shark in the world? Now, this is a tough question for many different reasons, one of them being that the elasmobranchs, the sharks and rays, are the second most threatened vertebrate group in the world, second only to the amphibians. Recent studies have shown that over a third of sharks and rays are threatened with extinction. So there are quite a few species that you can class as endangered and are classified as endangered by the IUCN Red List. And of course, that's just the species that we know enough about. We are still discovering new species all the time. And for many species, we actually just don't have the data to say how healthy their population is. And so species could be in decline without us even knowing. And so it's pretty tough to say what the most endangered species are but luckily there are people who have dedicated their lives to plugging these knowledge gaps and my guest today is one of them. Dr Dave Ebert has devoted his life to studying sharks, in particular rare and lesser known species. He is the founder of the Lost Sharks Project, you may know him as Lost Shark Guy on Twitter and Instagram. And through this project, he has undertaken many expeditions all over the world in search of lost sharks. That species that we know existed at some point in time, somewhere in the world, but no one has seen them for quite a while. So we need to find them to figure out if they actually still exist. These explorations have led to the discovery of not only lost sharks, but also over 50 new shark species. Dave has also contributed over 100 IUCN Red List assessments for sharks. That's the huge bodies of research that determine whether a species is classified as endangered by IUCN and just how close to extinction it is. And he has also authored over 30 books, including what I would argue is the Bible for shark enthusiasts, Sharks of the World, which is the most comprehensive source of information relating to all known shark species in the world, written by Dave, Mark Dando and Sarah Fowler. Now, Dave has been on this podcast before with Andrew Lewin, the co-host of their podcast, Beyond Jaws, and we did a crossover episode but we were both going to be at Sharks International a couple of weeks ago and I thought it would be a brilliant opportunity to record this episode on endangered species with Dave in person. Sharks International is a conference that happens once every four years with the aim to bring together people in shark science and conservation from all across the world. This year it was hosted in Valencia in Spain at one of the most unique conference venues I've ever been to, Oceanographique, which is a huge aquarium on the outskirts of Valencia. I was there with Save Our Seas and it was just so amazing to meet so many people who I've admired from afar, some of whom have been guests on this podcast before, but only virtually. So it was really cool to get to meet them in person and just to have all of these like-minded, incredible people in one room who are dedicating their lives to understanding and conserving sharks and rays. And there were so many great discussions that happened at the conference, including some of the big issues facing sharks globally and how we're going to tackle them, advances in science and technology, working with local fishing communities and communication and public engagement. So all different pieces of the jigsaw. So there was a lot going on, but I was lucky enough to get 40 minutes with Dave to record this episode. Because we are at a busy conference in the middle of an aquarium, there is a little bit of background noise, but nothing too much. If anything, you get the atmosphere of Sharks International. I really did pick Dave's brains about 
the rarest and most endangered species that we currently know about, including the Pondicherry shark and, yes, the lost shark. We also discuss how a species becomes endangered in the first place and what happens when you discover a species that's new to science and you have to name it. I really hope you like this one. It's filled with anecdotes about Dave's crazy travels and career and, of course, packed to the gills with weird shark facts. So without further ado, let's dive into our episode. Hello, Dave, and welcome back to the Holdies well, Podcast. Well, thanks, Isla. I'm happy to be back here and in Valencia, Spain for a change. <laughs> I know, I know, in a much warmer environment than I'm used to. I don't know about yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'll meet, well, meet, well I, came from, I just came from California, so it's been pretty warm there as well, but actually it's kind of fun today to do it in person. This is the first time we're actually meeting in person. I know. After, like, a year? year, yeah. Over a year, yeah. just communicating on WhatsApp and... On WhatsApp and, and other social media forms <laughs> and Zoom and whatever. So it's kind of nice to actually be in the same room, be together, and actually get to meet each other. That's so. it, yeah. And yeah. as I will have already said in the introduction, we're at Sharks International, which is... Mm kind of like the big mecca for shark scientists. Yes. Um, it's a shark nerd camp. Shark nerd camp. <laughs> but it's so nice to, after, you know, obviously years of, we've had the pandemic where mm. a lot of people haven't been able to meet each other. Yeah. It's just so lovely to see everyone in person. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing, the nice thing about the Sharks International is it brings a lot of people that you don't normally see, like even like I'll go to an American Alasm rank meeting, mm-hmm. but a lot of people I'll see here, which is only once every four years, I never see in person because they don't come to my meetings or I don't come to the European Elasmobranch meetings or the Oceanic Chondrichthyn Society. Mm-hmm. But at this meeting, you kind of get a lot of these people get to all congregate here because it is like sort of the ultimate shark nerd camp to it come is. here. <laughs> it is, yeah. And all the talks as well. Like I know I know you've been networking today, yeah. but all of the talks, even if you're not in that field, it's just so fascinating. There's mm-hmm. so many different facets to shark conservation and shark science. Yes. That it's just mm. completely fascinating to be in these sessions and listen to all the incredible people that are working on sharks from all over the world. Right. And I think a really neat thing, I was telling Paul Cox, who's the CEO of the Shark Trust, that I like some of the stuff they're trying. I realize not everything's going to work the way they want, but like they're recording the session so I can, after, and it'll be available for those of us that are, that are registered for a year. So if they have parallel sessions like they do, you can't be in two places at once, but I can go home, I've got a year, I can have a cup of coffee, a drink, and watch the sessions when I want, as I want mm-hmm. to catch them. And I think that's terrific to have that, that flexibility. And one of the things we, uh, when Paul was on the Beyond Jaws podcast with myself and Andrew Lewin, we talked about how um, I think these conferences need to change. And I think this is like a good model. I'm not saying it's the perfect one because it's, it's something a little different, but mm-hmm. I think the way these conferences have been going on for decades they need to change or they're just going to die a slow death. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I, I mean, we were, I think we were talking about something similar when you were last on The mm. Whole Tooth with Andrew. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about, you know, the importance of making shark science, A, more accessible yes. to non-scientists, but mm. also making these kinds of things more accessible to scientists from other parts of the world, different mm. backgrounds who, you know, these conferences are... Expensive. expensive yes yeah and it's a shame and because you've got on top of the conference fees you've also got the travel the tra- yep as well yeah um, and i think like even like this one was nice because last week they had they had a, it was an all virtual for five days yeah. and so you're people were able to connect oh for me some of the talks were between 12 midnight and 3 a.m but i'll catch the video uh, later on mm-hmm. uh, but then they followed up this week by having having uh, three days of in-person talks so you could actually congregate here and they had a couple uh, event activities going on just before the conference yeah. so it was nice to be able to like come here connect network with people hear some talks and then as i say if you can't catch every talk because you're talking to some people in person mm-hmm. you, you will have like a year to watch them mm-hmm. and i think it's some i think it's i think it's the way you need to go on these things because these conferences are expensive to get there mm-hmm. yeah and if you're self-funded people like myself and many actually many of us you can't afford to do more than one a year maybe yeah. and so yeah. i think this i think this is a i, th- I hope other groups organizations listening to this will 
kind of take note and 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 look at trying to evolve their their annual conferences somehow how to fit their needs it'll be more inclusive mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah i think it was such an important aspect to come out of the pandemic one of the positive aspects to come out of the pandemic and mm-hmm. um, one of few but the fact that in the scientific world and the academic world we started to have more conversations about how can we make these ha- these you know mm-hmm. these things happen for people who aren't able to attend the conferences how do we make them more mm-hmm. open and so I just think it's really lovely to see that being continued mm-hmm. um, after you know after things have gone to back to quote unquote yeah normal. yeah yeah we actually yeah. talked about this uh, with in the American Lazarus Brain Society a group of us were already discussing these virtual things mm. back just before this before the pandemic before we had any idea there was gonna be a pandemic and then when this happened it kind of forced us into looking at some different options and uh, and I think. Now it's kind of forced everyone into this thinking, this new way of thinking stuff. I think there, there sh- we should run with it, not just go back to the old ways of doing stuff because it's just, it's going to be hard. You're going to you're going to continue to exclude people because a lot of people just can't afford to do a lot of these conferences unless you have some kind of a funding base yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of conferences do do bursaries, but there's still there's limited amounts, and sometimes they're still not even. And well, and they're also mainly for students. So if you're a professional like myself, that would have to self-fund. Some people have funding projects. They get funded to go to conferences. That's terrific. Mm-hmm. But it's just, that's a small percentage. And I think as costs go up, you're going to continue to lose people. But like the nice thing about this is last week we had a chance to interact with people all over the world. I don't know. I'm sure they got a breakdown like how many countries people represented that were on in the virtual session versus this week. It'd be interesting to know because I think I know when we did, as an example, we did this uh, uh, wedge global wedge fish and guitar fish symposium, which, yeah. as those know, that those are probably the most endangered vertebrate group in the world are wedge fish and guitar fish, flat sharks. Mm-hmm. And, oh, we're going to talk about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we had so, the, but the whole thing is. We were going to originally have it in person, but because of the pandemic, we forced them to, we said, let's do it virtually. And we ended up getting people from like, we had people from like uh, almost 40 countries. We had 300 people registered for this thing from all over the world. Mm-hmm. We did it over two weekends. And it was just from what we could tell, there's a wild success. And we have this, we posted this stuff. And, and, and as an acknowledgement, Save Our Seas funded that. And because of that, we've posted the, videos from the presentations and they're going to be up in perpetuity mm-hmm. so and anyone can go in there you don't even in our case because we were able to get support for that there's you don't have to if even if you didn't register you can go on there and, and watch these talks anytime yeah, but where, where is that that people can go and they go into the american elasmo rank mm-hmm. society uh web page and go and it'll, there you'll see global wedgefish guitar fish symposium and you click the link it'll take you to the youtube channel you may be able to google it up and find it but if you go to the american lazo rank uh society page you can find it and you, can, you don't have to be a member you don't have to register you just got to go on there find the link click and it'll take you there fantastic yeah this episode is all about endangered species of mm-hmm. shark and i think we get asked this question probably once every two months when we put out a call for mm-hmm. questions on the podcast, and that is, what is the most endangered species of shark? Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of a better person to yeah. chat to about lost sharks, rare sharks, mm-hmm. endangered sharks. But how did you get into studying and looking for rare species in the first place? I was... I'll try to give you the summary story of it, but it, it, I was really fortunate in that when I was starting my career, and I kind of have now coined this term the Jaws generation, because when before the movie Jaws came out, there was no real field of shark science. It was shark attack, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And after that, after the movie came out, and I was in high school when the movie came out, but in the, in the late 70s, really in the 80s, People got were got interested. You hear a lot of negative stuff, but the people got really interested in, well, you know, how old do sharks get? How many species of sharks are out there? Mm-hmm. And because the same old textbooks had the same number of sharks, and and when you get into the flat sharks, the razors, there was almost nothing. Well, 
because of that, there was funding became available through the universities, and I was just starting out in grad mm-hmm. school in the 80s. And so at that time, because there was no real path, it was just if you could think about it and you're creative, it, you could you could you know pursue it. The professors would say, well, go check it out, find out. <laughs> and so this whole generation of us just were being creative and go find stuff out. Like you know, and at that time, white sharks weren't even really known much about them. Of course, now they've become the focus of everybody's stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the time, but I got interested in. Um, I just, these weird sharks, I would go out and I started out looking for stuff. In fact, what got me going was a, a fellow named John McCosker, who was the director of the Steinhardt Aquarium. And he says, you know, we got these sharks out here called uh, seven gill sharks, broad-nosed seven gill sharks. And he said, we catch them all the time. We know nothing about them. And I was like, well, that's cool. And so that's how I started. That was my first entry into doing research for my master's looking at these seven gill sharks and I worked on six gill sharks which we also caught as well mm-hmm. and then I just had such a like a lot of us had a curious mind wanted to know about these sharks and we were kept so and we start so that's how I kind of started just looking at these weird sharks that nobody knew about and then I, I just built on from there and then just as I traveled around we'll go to different places I'd see these on you I started finding these at the time I didn't call them lost sharks but I would go to these different like South Africa and other Namibia and I'd find these sharks and I'd collect them. And my advisor, Leonard Campagna, was one of the top shark guys in the world at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. I'd bring back specimens. He goes, this, is only, this specimen hasn't been seen in like 120 years. This one we know from like three specimens that were caught 75 years ago. No one's seen it since. And I was just out in these like remote areas in Africa and in Asia finding these things. And so I kind of just thought, well, this is kind of cool finding. They weren't even, these weren't necessarily new species. These were just species that, were lost nobody had seen yeah. and um, I didn't call them lost sharks then but they were just but there is actually a species called a lost shark yes there is and that was a species that was just named and this is this is actually a great example of it there's a species that was named in 2019 and it was Will White Peter Kine and uh, Mark Harris three mm-hmm. colleagues of mine mm-hmm. and it's known from three specimens the last one was caught in 19 or, well I wouldn't even caught it was in 1934 and these were all in museums in Southeast Asia. And they couldn't figure out what this thing was. And they looked at it and they realized that this was a species of shark that appears to have gone extinct in the 19, 1934, was the last record. And so when they named this thing, the scientific name is Carcharhinus obsolaris, they gave it the nickname, the common name, Lost Shark. Yeah. And it was literally the first time they declared a species, a fish, a shark extinct upon being named. And here's something that's nobody had seen for, at that time, 85 years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's just like the exact reason I do what I do mm-hmm. is because it's something like that. Because these lost sharks are just slipping away. Yeah. And nobody knows anything about them. And I could, I could, we could spend a whole couple hours just talking about all these other ones. But there's yeah. a number of these things that are just disappearing. No one, unless myself or someone like my, me goes and looks for them, we have no idea yeah. what's going on. Which is very sad because it's yeah. like these species are uh, disappearing into the sands of time without anyone even knowing about them. <clears throat> and just to go back to the lost shark, so I, the re, the, I was writing an article recently about the most endangered species of shark and so we did like a list of 10 mm-hmm. and I put the lost shark on it because on IUCN mm-hmm. it is still labeled as critically endangered but in mm-hmm. brackets it says possibly extinct. extinct yeah and is that just because so few have been found that you're not sure whether you'll find another one it's hard I mean you like to think oh here's a good example there's a rays just so people know are flat sharks if you take a shark and you flatten it it's a ray and I have to push that because rays are even in more trouble than a lot of the sharks and nobody thinks about the rays well about um there was a there was what's called a a a, a tentacle butterfly ray from the northern indian ocean that we was that was we were on the verge of listing as critically endangered possibly extinct Mm -hmm. and a colleague in iran found these things in the straits of hermos which is like one of the most difficult areas, let's say, to go into. And, and he found these things and he contacted uh, Arima Jabata originally yeah. and then got in touch with myself. And I'm like, oh my God, we found, and found this ray. We were almost ready to declare extinct in the IUCN. 
And there's a small area of the world where these things are still there and they catch them in fisheries. And we have a publication now coming out on this, on this thing. Mm-hmm. But this is the kind of thing where this thing, we don't even, we're not sure, we think it sort of ranged from sort of Pakistan, India, mm-hmm. in some of that area. And, and now all we know is from one little tiny stretch of coastline off Iran. Mm-hmm. And nowhere else in the world is this thing. It's like a remnant population, but we thought that it was extinct. Mm-hmm. And so that's a good example of it. And people say like, well, why do we really, why are these important? Well, the reason important is, is because a white shark is a very top predator. Mm-hmm. And by the time you start seeing issues like in the white shark population, which are generally doing pretty well, the problem is all these species below that, these lost sharks and these rays, the problem is they're food for a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. And those are going to go first. By the time you see what white sharks are having problems, like they talk about in South Africa now, forget the white sharks. It's all these other species that have probably been, been impacted that nobody pays any attention to because a lot of them are fished intensely in artisanal fisheries. And again, there's nobody, except for myself and a few others, there's nobody bothering to go out and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's, that's why you need to be pay attention to these these lost sharks mm-hmm. and because like a lot of them because i remember when i was researching it and one of the things that i did is went on the iucn red list mm-hmm. and just literally uh, selected all the critically endangered species and mm-hmm. looked through them all and it's amazing the amount of them that are like i mean there is you know the two hammerhead species that are critically endangered yeah. who are you know big sharks but then the majority of them are as you say the ray species or you know they're very small. Like they're, they're small. Co- they're small. Most of them are less than six feet. Most of them are like you know less than mm-hmm. you know a meter. You know, say around a meter, maybe one you know eighty centimeters to maybe one hundred twenty centimeters. A lot of them, and they're just they're caught in fisheries. And a lot. And the thing is, I always we you know, I talk about this a lot too on our podcast is that people in developed countries and the Western countries, the average person doesn't really understand like for a lot of the people in like West Africa, East Africa and a lot of, you know, a lot of the world, if they don't catch anything, they're not going to eat. So you've got to walk that line between making sure like, you know, people can eat and, and sending in, you know, sending in, there's a whole other discussion, but sending in food is just not going to do it because people want to work. They need to get out. You've got traditions, cultures and stuff. And, but you want them to be able to like, do it sustainably and a lot of times when they are fishing the sharks and the rays that means because a lot of the bony fishes have been wiped out mm-hmm. and so they're down there so it's a, it's a food security issue mm-hmm. and I don't think and a lot of people I don't think realize that if you haven't been to these types of places you really don't understand like I mean mm-hmm. you know you run to the grocery store you call Instacart or whoever but I mean you're talking about it. you don't get out of bed you go out and you fish and you catch something or you don't eat that day and when you see something like you talk about something that's critically endangered sawfish Mm-hmm. which have an added value that were almost, I don't say a nuisance, but they're a big fish. They had a lot of flesh. They catch one, but nobody really targeted them. Well, because the fins are so valuable mm-hmm. that suddenly like, well, you know, a lot of these villages can make a lot of money all of a sudden from, from, you know, certain buyers on the fins. And so they like, well, let's go catch the wolves, target them more. And as, as we know, soft fishes have disappeared from, most of their range outside the U.S., mm-hmm. Australia, and a few other places, they've vanished. I mean, you know, years ago, 30 years ago, when I was first in, going to Africa, they would once in a while, you'd, you'd hear of them, they would still get them. But now it's a huge event in East Af- or even West Africa if somebody gets a sawfish because mm-hmm. you just rarely ever see them again. Yeah, I mean, we, we've actually got two of the rostrums at home um, because mm-hmm. my granddad used to yeah. he was he was in World War Two. he was stationed in uh, in Africa at certain points and he, mm-hmm. he came back with all of this stuff mm-hmm. that now as a kid I didn't think anything about it but now I'm like oh my goodness like, you probably yeah. wouldn't get that ever again and they're, yeah. they're enormous they're oh yeah. Huge. yeah 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 and there and yeah and there's and you find like places there's different institutions that have like I'll say piles but large numbers of these and the thing with this with the sawfish is because people would cut off the rostrum for curios Mm -hmm. and they would save them you have some idea like how many used to be around Mm -hmm. but if i say like well gee how many pondicherry sharks were out there you'd have no idea all you know and and just for people know that pondicherry shark's been one of these sort of uh I always call it like sort of the panda bear, the lost shark world, because it's sort of the, the, the logo. But this is a shark that, you know, we know used to occur like up in the northern Indian Ocean. 
It was discovered in 1839. Nobody's seen one in at least 50 years. Yeah. And we don't know if this is one that may be extinct. We're not sure. Um, but where it occurs is really intensely fished areas. But you have no... Rec- All we have is some museum specimens similar to the lost shark. But we have a few more of the, these these uh, pond cherry sharks, and I get I get I can tell you I get photographs all the time. People saying, "Is this the pond cherry? Is this the pond cherry?" No, it's not the pond cherry shark. Because they look quite similar to some other species as well. Yeah, That's one of the problems with the pond cherry. Right, there's these. They're in a group. It's called requiem sharks, mm-hmm. and they're these small little. I say small, like you know, four feet, hundred twenty centimeter length sharks, mm-hmm. and even a little. Some are a little smaller. But there's a whole group of them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people will get one and think, oh, we've got a pond cherry. Now it's a spot tail or it's a graceful shark or something else. And so why, why, like, say, some of those species are still there and the pond cherry's gone, I have no idea. And because they've just been gone so long, we don't really have a good idea how many of them used to be around, mm-hmm. how common they were. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, another species, if I can use an example, there's a species called a honeycomb cat shark, which is sort of endemic to the... Uh, KwaZulu Natal, okay. southern Mozambique coastline, and we and we know from records in the 50s and 60s they used to be caught frequently in uh, the shrimp net, shrimp trawls, offshore shrimp trawls. Mm-hmm. And this species, the last record we have of one was in 1972, and this species was not named until 2006, 34 years 34 years after it disappeared. And people ask me like, what I do? I go, well. I try to, if they don't have a name, I try to give them a name because if they don't have a name, it's harder to implement any conservation or management policies. So, but here's a little shark. Again, it doesn't get very big, you know, 50, 60 centimeters. And it's been gone, well, 50 years. And we know it was caught. We only know this because of photographs and some people were studying it. We're just recording, while they were studying, they were recording it. Mm-hmm. But we didn't, but they missed it. It had been misidentified and people didn't realize it was actually an undescribed species. And so this is another example of like, well, what impacts this having on the environment? Yeah, because there, for, for anyone that's listening who's maybe into birds, the equivalent would be the LBJs, the little brown jobs. Mm. So the, these yeah. are the kind of sharks that are like the LBJs of the shark world. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I heard it. They use it. LBJs use a different term for them, but they, they do in Scotland as well. But I'm yeah. going to be PC. yeah. We're, <laughs> wants us to say a family show. <laughs> someone might contact you and be like we found this weird Mm -hmm. shark we don't know what it is we've never seen it before or we think it's this very rare species Mm -hmm. what how do you even begin the process of looking for this well because i've been doing this for a while i have a pretty good network around and the first thing i usually encounter when people send me something that they think it's either something they know or they ask me if i could verify the id it's the photograph and for those listening, if you're in some area, you see something, an unusual shark or a ray, lay it out sideways so it's a lateral view and take a and put a little measure, something kind of a, a reference. If you don't have a ruler, something like a, a pen or a pencil or mm-hmm. just something that is a reference point, how big it is, and just take a lateral picture. Because a lot of times people will, they'll just take a picture of it and it'll be like kind of dirt and sand on it or it'll be in a pile of sharks, it'll be a head and a tail sticking out mm-hmm. or they'll do it more artistically, which... It might look fine to them, but it, it, it's hard for me because a lot of these sharks, there's subtle differences. And, and mm. the only way I can really do is looking at on a lateral thing. If you get a picture of the teeth, if it's assuming it's dead, a picture of the teeth. If it's a ray, just lay it down flat and just take a picture looking down on it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe if, it, if, somebody, if it's not too big of a ray or a shark, you can take a picture of the underside of this snout. That can help. Those, just, if, just those couple things there are huge. And you'd think it would be simple for, on pictures, but most people don't know how to take pictures of like a shark or a ray that would make it help me to identify it yeah. to species. And uh, so otherwise I might say, well, it could be this, this, or this, mm. which is helpful. Yeah. Um, well, because some of these species, because um, I, I obviously have a copy of Sharks of the World, mm-hmm. which because I'm a shark nerd is, is just basically bedtime reading. Like one of my favorite things to do is to go to the back Mm-hmm. look at the funkiest names of a shark and then go and read about it because there's yeah. you know so oh, sharks I, I use the term shark to describe 
sharks and rays and skates mm-hmm. in chem years but this book is just just covers sharks and there's so many even in this book yeah but the differences between some of the species you're literally talking like the shape of a tooth or yeah. the shape of their <clears throat> mouth from the underside or a very mm-hmm. specific part of it yeah we tried in the in in some of the shark in the sharks of the world book in some of those groups we tried to break them down to like like the requiem sharks, which we've talked a little about. That thing has things like bull sharks in it, oceanic white tips, and 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 uh, um, sandbar sharks, which are some sharks people might be familiar with. But it, we try to put like in the beginning of the book, like a characteristic you can separate those sharks out from is if it has a ridge between the dorsal fins, mm-hmm. which most people it's like oh ridge between the dorsal fin. It either does or it doesn't. The reason that's something like that we try to put a character in there is that. It separates out. So maybe you, so in that group you have say thirty four species of sharks. Mm-hmm. You can separate out. You can eliminate half of them because half, roughly half, half. I don't know the exact number off the top. I should, but you can get those that say if, if there's a ridge present. Okay, well you know about half these don't have a ridge. Mm-hmm. And so if you say like David has a ridge or doesn't have a ridge, okay that eliminates a whole bunch of options. And now you're now you work with what you have, what's left. Are there any unique colors to the fins? Are they plain? And sometimes the shark, when sharks are dead or they've been sitting in the sun for a while, they lose their color. So color is not always the best option. But sometimes you, some of the species you, you can tell mm-hmm. if it's a more fresh species from the fin colors will help. It's a process of elimination. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a black tip shark, does it have a black fin tip? Mm-hmm. And again, that that's you know that'll eliminate some more species. It's all a process of elimination. And then it gets then it could come down to depending on what part of the world you're in you can narrow it down to maybe a few options. Mm-hmm. And then that's where if you can get like a, a lateral picture, picture of the teeth, the teeth are very distinctive in that particular group group of sharks. Yeah. So it's, it's, all, it's all a process of elimination. But if you look at the beginning of some of those groups, at the beginning of that section, we'll usually have some characters that'll say like, here's how to break them into different groups. Mm-hmm. And even something like that is very helpful. Mm-hmm. And then say once you've got to that point where you've identified, you've been able to identify a species and mm. you're pretty, you're 100% confident yeah. that's the species. Um, or even it's a species that you've kind of maybe known has existed, but like you said, doesn't have a name yet. Mm-hmm. How does that, how do you even go about officially naming a new that's a species. that's a process the thing i want to back on the thing i tell people like cause they say well you go look how do you go find all these sharks and it's like i never go look for a, a new species uh-huh. i go there i always go to look to identify i work and i work with people in country mm-hmm. who want that information but we go through and we survey there and we identify what we can find and it's usually during that process we'll find species that are rare, unique, we haven't seen, and of course new species yeah. is how we do that. But if I find something that looks like, well, this looks like this might, this might be a new species, once in a while I'll have that sort of what I call that eureka moment where like, yes, that's a new species. Most of the time it's like, I'd probably say 75% of the time I'm like, I think that might be new, but we need to, and when these are already usually at the fish markets, they're already dead. It will say, let's take, let's save this one or buy it off the fisherman. We usually, we usually buy him off him so he doesn't come away with anything, nothing. Because they're going to market, they're selling it anyway. So yeah. whether they get money from me or somebody else, we'll just, just buy it. And then I'll take it back to wherever my colleague's sort of base of operation is. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of times we'll, we'll, I'll take up some measurements in the field on it and then, and then we'll work and then. I try to like source a museum that's either in country or in the region. In a worst, in worst case, say, say I'll, I'll bring some back and put them into museums like like California Academy of Sciences is close to me, um, so it makes it easy for me. But we'll try to like if, if we can collect multiple ones, we'll spread them around to different places. But then begins the pro, the really the the fun, the sort of the CIS type of thing where we're trying to go through and. It's kind of a fun because it really is like like a crime scene investigation, trying to figure out like what this thing is, and uh, and so you go th- you, and you got to do. And one thing about the museums, you have to go to museums. You have to look at comparative material because you need to make sure it's different. Mm-hmm. You have to write up a description on it, which isn't as bad as it sounds. The hard part is the, the harder, more well, the fun, fun hard part is the was why is it different. Okay. And now, now people today use genetics, but that's just one tool in the toolbox because in a lot of these places you can't just say, oh, we're going to just take a fin clip or we're just going to do some 
thing because most of these don't have most of these countries don't have that ability. So you need to show why is it more why if you're looking at this thing it's different. And an interesting thing is a lot of times the fishermen know. So I, I talk I spend a lot of time talking to the fishermen. Often it's through interpreters because they don't speak a language. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be Swahili or Kosa or some other language I don't speak or some or Taiwanese or some and so which is kind of fun but I, I work with that's why I work with also in a, people in countries they know the language and stuff mm-hmm. and the fishermen they'll say oh well, they'll give you like three reasons why it's different so in my mind I'm like okay well I'm going to look at those because they, they think it's different and these are when they have similar looking species mm-hmm. and the reason they know this is because sometimes they'll make get more money for one species versus another even though they kind of look right. the same mm-hmm. um, example I use is if people are familiar with angel sharks Mm-hmm. In Taiwan, they catch four species of angel sharks, and the fishermen at the markets. I was I was seeing this when I was a, first went to Taiwan as a young person many years ago. They were putting them in piles to the same species. And I thought well, that's kind of interesting. I sort of asked, "Is well, we get more money for this one, we get less money for this one, and and so there was a whole. So it was worth their time to separate them, and they knew they were different. Mm-hmm. But even my Taiwanese colleagues that were in academia, they didn't. They knew yeah. why they did it, but. They really couldn't tell them apart, but the fishermen knew. Mm-hmm. If they want to talk, they'll give me some clues as to why it's different. And then I got that knowledge I'll, I'll take with me to separate. So you want to compare it, why it's different. And then when you just, and then you have to basically write up a paper. It has to be what they call peer-reviewed in a scientific publication. Yeah. And you have to have a specimen. Sometimes people go like, well, why'd you kill this? Well, it was already dead in a fish market. But you have to have a specimen in a museum so if other researchers come along later, they have like what's called a type specimen or a holotype. And then so you know what that, it it really becomes like a historical document Mm -hmm. is what it it is. It's it's a historical artifact. And so you want to be able to like identify, that's what you base everything else on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, and then so once your thing, once you have your specimens in the museum, your paper gets published, then you officially have a name. You did mention angel sharks, though. Yeah. And so the question that we get asked, which I think is quite a hard question to answer, is what is the most endangered species of shark or what is the most threatened type yeah. of shark? And I don't know how you would answer, yeah. how would you answer that? The, well, there's a number of species. I, I was just involved with a paper with um, Nick Dolby and many others with the IUCN mm-hmm. that found a, roughly about a third of all sharks are you know vulnerable or higher following the IUCN criteria. And you have you range from data deficient to least concerned and near threatened, and then you get to vulnerable, endangered, and then critically endangered. Mm-hmm. And about a third of them, they figure, are vulnerable or higher. Yeah. So those. Just, just briefly, people can read this in the article that I wrote. Yeah. Um, but like, you've got data deficient, which is like there's we don't know anything about them. Yeah, and then near near threatened is like it could within the ne- the near yeah. future should yeah should be could, be yeah pay attention to it you know yeah, but it's keep not an eye. keep an eye on it yeah. But then when you get into vulnerable um, endangered, endangered and then critically endangered, those yeah. are the three threatened categories. Right. When people say something's threatened with extinction. Mm-hmm. Those are the categories that they're talking about. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, as a group, and again, you could, I could, if I had a Nick Dolby or a couple of people here, we could have a nice. I mean, he is around. I know. Oh, I, I know. I'll probably be having a beer with him later on today. <laughs> um, but we, I mean, we could throw around different groups. But you know, one of the so it's hard to say like one species. But if I had to pick a group. I mentioned earlier, it's the what's were these wedge fish, guitar fish, mm. and in that particular group of ver- is a group of vertebrates that's probably the most endangered group of any vertebrate group, because mm. uh, all the species of the wedge fish and we're called giant guitar fish. It's about 16, 18 species. They're all like basically critically endangered yeah. as a group. Where some of the other ones, you have some that might be vulnerable or endangered. But pretty much all of those are critically endangered. And so, as a group, those are those are in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's one in the there's some in the aquarium. Have you? Yeah, we're, we're at an aquarium. Actually. Right, it's international. Right, um, but there is there is some in the aquarium. Yep. It's the first time I've I've seen them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know when else I would have seen them because they're you know quite hard to find nowadays. Right, but. right, right. And a lot of these species occur in areas where they're 
in, in countries like in, you know, East or West Africa, where there's not like a lot, there hasn't been traditionally like a lot of infrastructure or people that were even, because sharks were so far down the line and rays are even further down the line that people just don't have any, really have any, pay any close attention to those things. So now that we're bringing more awareness to them, that's why I always try to talk about flat sharks, which are rays, but if you mention flat sharks, people pay more attention to them. Uh, but as a group, those are probably amongst the m most critically endangered. You have sawfish are in the same group. They're also um, in the same order of, of sharks, rays, and or it's just the, what we call the shark rays. Right? They call them rhino rays. I like to call them shark rays. But they're they're another group that are mostly critically endangered. And with them, a lot. And these are also coastal species. Mm -hmm. Coastal species where they are intensely fished, like sawfish it's not just the fishing but a lot of their habitat mangroves have been wiped out mm -hmm. for aquaculture or for other you know, luxury resorts or whatever they've just been have been impacted and so they don't have anywhere to reproduce carry out their life cycle mm -hmm. and so that's another aspect people don't think about exactly right because a lot of the um the species that are actually on the critically endangered list as well are species <laughs> that are very specific to a certain habitat or they exclusively exist on reefs mm -hmm. or you know shallow areas where they are extremely vulnerable mm -hmm. to overfishing which is you know something yeah. something at least especially when we talk about overfishing right you think of, you think about the open ocean you mm -hmm. think about you know and this is a huge problem as big sharks being taken mm -hmm. you know by, as bycatch but also targeted directly but then right. when you're talking about coastal species or shallow waters, they're particularly vulnerable, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about, you know, small scale artisanal fisheries well, as well. Exa exactly. Like, yeah, some of the larger sharks tend to be more wide ranging. They're going everywhere. Yeah. But some of these small sharks, and I talked about the honeycomb earlier, and I can give some other examples, but they, they have a very narrow stretch of coastline, sometimes a few hundred kilometers. And that's the only place we, these things occur. And so if you, impact them in that area they're nowhere they're, they're not wide ranging and so you can you can you can really put a big impact on their population especially if they're coastal mm -hmm. and some of these species we talk about like the lost shark or the pondicherry shark or talk to the uh, the tentacle butterfly rate they only have a very narrow coastal range that we know them from mm -hmm. they may have been a little wider at one time but now we just don't we don't know and and that whole area is contracting now because of fishing as i mentioned with the, the tentacle butterfly ray there's only one little area in the whole world and it's the hermos straits where this thing still occurs we we've excused the the little break there um we've actually had lunch since we were and it was an excellent lunch too <laughs> it was a good lunch uh, we had to move out of the room that we're in so if it sounds different to you guys, that'll be why. We're in a slightly different room. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that we got this into the podcast because you have just, or you have just discovered a new skate genus. Right. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a, this is, what's interesting is that this is my, actually my first genus. I've done a number of lots of species, but it's actually my first time in a genus is when you have a group of species that are very similar, they'll, they'll it's the next level of, classification that they'll the genus and the scientific name will be the same you'll have like something something genus and the species name will be distinct well there's this whole group of skates and i say a group there's four species in this particular genus and they had been in the wrong a different genus and why it's important is again it gets down to life history being able to uh, protect things and develop conservation and, and management policy on the species and if you have on species if you have the wrong species you can be making the wrong policy when you have the same genus you're only expanding that because now you have an entire group of in this case flat sharks skates that are are in the wrong group and so and what's interesting is this is this was off california so it wasn't even in some remote part of the world uh the group of skates there turns out they are in a completely new genus that I just recently named. The genus is Caliraj, which is named after the state of California in Baja, California, in the Gulf of California. So it's kind of because that's where these, these skates mainly occur. They occur up to, they get up this genus, they range up to Southeast Alaska and then down to the Gulf of California. But since I'm from California and most of them all of them occur in California, on California waters, I decided like, well, we're going to call it Caliraja. 
But it's kind of neat that here you have like high tech Silicon Valley and, it, and we're still finding new species of sharks. Yeah. New, not just new species, but new genus of sharks, which is an entire, again, it's an entirely new group. So there's actually four species in this genus. And it's pretty cool. I think, cool. yeah, yeah. I didn't, and I didn't even have to go anywhere exotic to find it. I just had to look in my own backyard. <laughs> I mean, people would be amazed at how many times that probably happens, right? Because mm -hmm. we're still finding out so much about sharks, rays, yeah. skates. Yeah, well, well, about 10 years ago, I named a new species of ghost shark. Well, actually, one of my students and I named a new species of ghost shark from California. Uh -huh. And so that was pretty cool that we're still finding new sharks off California. Entirely new species. I know I'm aware of a couple other ghost sharks off California. I just haven't been able to get one yet to like name it officially. But there's probably at least one more species out there, maybe two, that are new. So and as I say, it's, it's kind of neat. You're still find, we're still finding new species here. I'm sure there's more. I mean, just in over the last 20 years, I think I've been there's about five shark species that were not known from California waters that I've now documented here. And though they were known to occur more off Mexico and further south. And here we find, I found them off California now. So even that, again, is important information from a management standpoint. I was going to say, will that have any implications for their protection or for their management? Yeah, well, in California, we've actually done a pretty good job and our shark populations are generally really good. And I like to highlight that because people, you hear too much doom and gloom. And I think people oftentimes, they dwell on that. They should, if you have a positive story, you should share that. I think we've done a really good job on our shark populations. That includes the skates and the ghost sharks and the rays. And we should acknowledge that. And so that's, that, I think that's a good thing. And so in that, basically with the new, these new species we've documented from California, we have a better understanding of what occurs here and what, occur, what even if there's some that might occur rarely here, we still have a better idea what occurs here. And, and going forward in the future, we know what's here. It can, it can help improve policy as needed. Um, but again, I mean, we're, we're, we've done a pretty good job in California. I got to tip my hat that it, and I want to highlight that, that comment. So that's, but it's always, you can know better. We know more now than we did 20 years ago. Yeah, really positive. And, um, I mean, IUCN as well, they've started doing kind of like the opposite of the red list. So mm -hmm. they've got information now on their website where you can now see where our population is increasing mm -hmm. rather than just decreasing, right. um, which is a little, adds a little bit of light to right. this, uh, a very what is quite a bleak situation yeah, and, and sharks are a good one you hear, people always t again talk about the negative parts and there are some certainly shark populations have gone down and we talked today about some that have disappeared possibly but there are a lot of positive stories you can and there are some shark species that you can fish sustainably and there are and there are areas where people where they've been the governments have been very proactive in developing you know, good policies and stuff. If you keep dwelling on the doom and gloom, people will just give up, say, well, they're all you know, screwed. And so like, let's forget about it. So you gotta, you gotta highlight the positive, you know? The, yeah, things can work. If things do work, yeah. And you need to point it out. And, and one and I think is not, one size doesn't fit all, like something that might work off California and you know, Canada and, and Alaska may not work in Mexico or some other, or, or Central or South America, just as examples. So you have to develop your policies and your conservation strategies to go with that particular area. Because you're dealing, again, this is where you're dealing with different species. And so like, you know, you have these species occur, what occurs in California may not occur off Brazil, for example. In fact, it probably doesn't. Mm -hmm. So you need to have a different strategy in mind to how you might uh, develop a positive, conservation strategy that that'll enable the populations to, to flourish yeah. that's why we need taxonomy that's why we need to know mm -hmm. about the life history traits absolutely do they need a very specific habitat type yes um, a lot of that that sounds like very basic information for a species but for you know sharks rays a lot of them we don't actually have that we, we don't even yeah, basic stuff like habitat we, we a lot of them we don't even know what their preferred habitat and, and a lot of times during the life cycle where the young are born is one habitat where they grow up is a different habitat and where the adults live is a different habitat we don't we know almost nothing about about that with sharks and there's unfortunately not a lot of people spend time on it because it's time consuming you got to be in the field a lot and too often people want to take the shortcut like take lots of pretty pictures of the sharks in the wild and that's kind of neat to do but is that really helping you 
advance anything because you still don't know where these things live. Yeah. You know, again, some species we do. I mean, it's not a blanket comment for all, but the majority of species, we don't really know anything about their, their life histories or, or more importantly, their habitat. Been on, you know, expeditions all over the world mm. to try and find lost species, or you've seen a lot of them in as museum specimens or here in yeah. captivity. But if you could, if there was any species that you could see the, for yourself in oh, the wild, do you know? What oh, oh yeah, big-eyed sand tiger, no doubt. Because it's just it's this is probably one of the rarest sharks in the world. They do catch them occasionally, and this is a shark that probably gets at least 13, 14 feet long. It's in the same group as the white sharks, what they call the mackerel sharks. And um, it's just, to me, it's just, it's such a cool shark. And I, the best way to describe it, go Google this up. Big-eyed <laughs> sand tiger, Odontaspis noronhai. There's, I don't think there's been 20 ever seen in the world. And they've been found all over the world, one here, one there. And if I had one that I'd love to see in the wild, it'd be the, it, that would be the species. Does it have big eyes? Yes, it does. Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it's got big teeth too, but and it's actually a, it's probably a pelagic species. We think because they catch them on, when they do get them, they get them occasionally on tuna long lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, but check that out. It's, I mean, it actually looks like a proper shark, a big shark with teeth. But it's it's such it's people talk about rare shark. This is probably one of the, the rarest sharks out there. We do get them occasionally. They do catch them occasionally, but they're just one will turn up here, one will turn up there. And uh, they seem to be kind of global, but if I had one, I'd love to see that'd be it. I could, I could literally like drop the mic, walk off stage, and be a happy guy the rest of my life. That'd if be I done, stay. retired. Yeah, well, I, I'd hate, <laughs> I hate to say retired, but yeah, I would be like, I would be a, if I could see one of those in the wild, would be just phenomenal. I would be like, I yeah, I could die a happy guy at that point in time. That'd be one I'd be. And I've been fortunate to see a lot of cool ones, but that's one I would love to see. Well, it has been such an absolute pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming back on and also for putting up with having to move venues. Um, <laughs> you did get lunch and coffee. Yep. So. <laughs> That's, yep, did okay out of this whole thing. It's great seeing you at Island, in, actually in person here in Valencia. Yeah. It's a great place and hopefully we can do this again in person sometime. This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and edited by me, Isla Hodgson. Our beautiful artwork is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A huge thank you to Dave for taking time out of your Sharks International experience to talk to me all about endangered species. You can follow Dave's work by following at Lost Shark Guy on social media. And you can listen to his and Andrew's podcast, Beyond Jaws, on all of your podcast apps. And a massive thank you to you at home for listening. As always, you can get in touch by emailing Isla at SaveOurSeas.com or via our social media. We are at SaveOurSeas Foundation on Instagram and at SaveOurSeas on Twitter. Alrighty, have a jawsome week and we will see you next time.